I'm Matt Booker. I'm Dave Laird. And I'm Mike O'Connell. And like George says, there's another tricky thing about writing. It's like being a plumber, but every time you show up, the pipes are made of different materials and transport different types of liquid, and you're given weird new tools, and you're drunk. Thanks cool. for joining us today, Mike. Thank you, Michael O'Connell. Welcome to episode 69 of Concavity Show. Great to have you here. Nice to be here. You are no stranger to the show. You you were a guest on episode 17.1 when we interviewed some folks at the 2016 Wallace Conference. And uh, you and I sat down and talked for about 10 or 15 minutes for that. So longtime listeners will be possibly somewhat familiar with uh, with your voice if they have elephantine memories. <laughs> I remember in the in the conference room at uh, IU. Sitting that's down right. There chatting. were books all over the place. It was like a mini library or something like that. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and longtime friend of the show, so it's great to give you a full episode finally, Michael. Thanks for joining. Yeah, I'm very happy. Very happy to be here. Thanks for having me on. Awesome. So, Mike, I uh, haven't seen you since Austin in June, but that was really fun, <laughs> and I only wish that. We could have had more time together, uh, but Mike uh, sort of led the first conference, the first panel of the whole conference at the Wallace conference here in Austin oh, nice. back June 1st, June 2nd. And his paper as per usual was amazing and we knew it would be very strong. And so you sort of had the lead off batter position um, in, the, in the whole conference. Yeah, it was a real, it was a real honor to kick off and that conference was just just fantastic um yeah i had to bail because it was my 20th college reunion was that same weekend oh right uh, but yeah i mean i wish i could have stayed till the end and the parts that i was there for were just absolutely fantastic such a well-run interesting fascinating conference so well i really appreciated you you know being there for it um and we're here today to not necessarily talk about wallace although i think he will come up we're here to talk about so <laughs> your book uh which came out this year remind me of the exact date it came out it came out in this summer. I'm not August, sure the exact. It sort of like filtered out. People were getting it in July, but I think maybe the official release date was August. Yeah, that sounds right. Um, so it's Conversations with George Saunders, and it's part of the University of Press of Mississippi series, uh, the yeah. Conversation series, of which we have you know several people we know who have been involved in this series. Uh, the Steve yeah. Erickson book we had on uh, last year. Um, mm -hmm. Obviously, there's a book with Wallace edited by Stephen Byrne in the series. Um, but Lillo, I will Tom say Zellers. before we get too much into Saunders and um, the book, I really want to um, get some of your background. And, uh, you know, obviously we met at Wallace Conference and I basically let's start like give us a little background of profile of who you are. Like, how did you get into literature what did you do your phd on where did you go what are you doing now give us your like um uh, sure the little you want to just read your bio stitch. off the back no, of the book no 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 no, 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 no that, that doesn't that doesn't answer my reading. question dave dave that is not what i'm asking i'm not asking him to read the bio i'm i'm saying how did you get into literature what did you what yeah, did you so, study yeah so um literature is probably it would be 
the most accurate to say that sort of the family business. Um, my dad <laughs> is a literature professor. Uh, so he has a PhD in English and a PhD in theology because um, he's an overachiever. Two PhDs. So oh my gosh. Yeah. Wow. In a world surrounded by books um, <laughs> and always loved reading and writing. And so, yeah, I mean, I think just like lots of other families where you see what your parents do and you're like, oh, that seems interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, when I went off to college, that was sort of, you know, what I majored in. I majored in literature at Notre Dame um, and just sort of always assumed that I would also go on to become a teacher and or writer. Um, after I graduated, I went first to Boston University in a PhD program there um, and enjoyed it. But um, shortly after the program started, my wife became pregnant and we decided we didn't want to live out in Boston um, and start our family. So we moved back to Michigan um, and I just worked at sort of a crummy job for a while while we had a kid and like figured that part of our lives out. Um, and she went that takes a lot of figuring. Yeah, it was part. exhausting and hard. <laughs> I'm in it um, right now. <laughs> as, you, as I'm sure you guys know. Um, and we were like right out of college. So we were just oh, yeah. babies having babies. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, so we took- Because yeah, your eldest is like just graduated high school or is yeah, first so year uni- university is a, now? Is a, yeah. yeah, freshman at uh, DePaul right now. So, oh my gosh, yeah. Yeah, which is pretty Wild. crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I thought that maybe I wasn't going to do a PhD anymore. Like after I left the program, I was like, well, maybe I'll just work a job and um, kind of live life. There was a part of being in the PhD program at BU where I was kind of like, ah, what am I doing? Is this really like meaningful? Am I just reading books and talking about them and writing papers that nobody's ever going to read? Um, <laughs> which I think for anybody who studies literature is sort of a ever-present problem. Right? Like, yeah. um, in academia, like is this, how narrow is this field? Which actually, to come back to it, but like is one reason that sort of finding the Wallace community was really mm-hmm helpful and encouraging because it was like oh these people actually do care um so anyways when we were in michigan i started casting around because i realized i didn't want to work as like a technical writer or in this research department at the hospital where i was working i was like this is also sort of meaningless i don't want to do this either i might as well do something that i enjoy um so i started looking into phd programs again um, and ended up at loyola in chicago there was a professor there who um his name is Mark Bosco. He wrote this book on Graham Greene's Catholic imagination that I had read. I was like, oh, this is fantastic. Um, this is the sort of writing that I would like to do. Um, mm-hmm. So I reached out to him and was just kind of like, hey, I'm thinking about coming back to finish my PhD. You know, are you interested in having a student come and work with you? And he was very encouraging. So I applied to the program and got in. Um, and yeah, we had at that point had two kids and my wife was a uh, fellow, pediatric fellow at uh, Northwestern's Children's Hospital. So again, we were just like super busy. Um, but yeah. I think that helped um, to sort of just, there was no part of me that felt like mucking around when I was in the PhD program. I was just like, I need to get through this. I need to complete this uh, like a job. Um, and I think I finished the program, you know, faster than most of the people who came in with me just because I was ready to move on um yeah to get on with the business of life and what did yeah. you do your uh, dissertation on the dissertation was on violence in catholic fiction and right. so it was on I, I wrote about flannery o'connor and walker percy alice mcdermott and annie dillard this cajun writer tim Gatro, and then actually the last chapter was on wallace um 
hmm. as sort of a Catholic writer uh, or ways that his writing, even though he wasn't Catholic, uh, mirrored a lot of the themes and interests that I was writing about in the rest of the book. And part of the reason that I included him was just because I was really into reading Wallace at the time. And even though he was only sort of tangentially Catholic, as I think probably a lot of the listeners to the show know um, that he went through the RCIA program and failed out twice um, the right of Christian initiation for adults like to become Catholic. And, you know, he was intrigued by, but unwilling to, or unable to commit to Catholicism. But a lot of the things that attracted me about the Catholic writers I was writing about also showed up in his work. Um, so I used that as my final chapter uh, in the dissertation. And then that turned into one of the first essays that I had published, which was in Christianity literature about, you know, sort of the Christian themes in Wallace's writing, which I think is how Matt at least sort of heard of me. Um, right. So, so that essay I think was very influential that you published on, uh, it was basically arguing Wallace as a Christian existentialist writer, sort of in the tradition of Walker, Walker Percy. And I, at the time was doing a conference paper on Fogel and obviously Fogel being, uh, you know, this very direct Jesuit influence, this conversion narrative. Um, I was very interested in, in that whole story. And really, I think your essay there helped me bolster my own thoughts of, you know, was Wallace really considered or could be considered a Christian writer Um in the way that some of these other writers could Flannery O'Connor, I think definitely influenced him. I think, you know, positively or negatively, he was influenced by Updike who had Christian thoughts. Um, and I don't know if I ever told you the story, Mike, but I, that year I did that conference paper I was on a panel with Josh Roiland, who was doing a thing about nonfiction and had interviewed Leslie Jameson and John Jeremiah Sullivan. And he told me, Hey, John Jeremiah Sullivan's very interested in this topic as well. Wallace as Christian writer is okay if I like send him your paper. I was like, hell yeah. So I had some back and forth over email with John Jeremiah Sullivan, JJ Sullivan. And he was basically like, you know, okay, this is great, but do you really think Wallace believed all this stuff? Was he really a Christian? And I basically gave him like, you know, I said, well, I just read this thing about Christian existentialism from Michael O'Connell and gave him your, you know, sort of shortened version of your argument. And uh, he was like, huh, I'll have to think on that. And then, you know, I didn't follow up after that, but I did parlay your your paper on Wallace a um, little farther down the road on email. I don't know if I ever told you that, but uh, I did not hear that, but that's fantastic. Yeah. I love Sullivan stuff. Yeah. He's fantastic. He's yeah. so good. So. Southern, another Southern writer in that tradition. Um, yeah. So Notre Dame, you're writing about you. This is all Catholic, I guess, is what I'm getting to is that you now, you also now teach at a Catholic <laughs> university, right? Is that right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, yeah. At Notre Dame, my, like the honors thesis I wrote was on Flannery O'Connor um, so yeah, Catholic writers is sort of the, the through line for most of the sort of scholarly work that I've uh, been interested in over the years. And that kind of dovetails nicely into George Saunders here because in like pretty much most interviews I've read of his or heard of his, he talks about his Catholic upbringing, right? In Chicago. Um, so you could sort of like... Uh, lump him into this category a little bit as well although like he obviously also talks about 
being a practicing Buddhist and all that stuff. And, and those themes come up a lot in this, in this collection, don't they? Yeah. I mean, 100%, yeah. um, you know, I was, uh, I don't know how we want to sort of transition into talking about Saunders, but like when I started reading Saunders' stuff, it was a similar um, experience when I first started reading Wallace, where I, I didn't know anything about his biography, but like the themes of the work just really resonated. Um, and it seemed like he was interested in the same stuff that the Catholic writers like yeah, totally. Walker Percy and Flannery O'Connor um, mm -hmm. had been wrestling with uh, yeah. sort of, you know, these big questions of like meaning and value and um, sin and redemption. And so well, when there's also the it, similarity, the work. Yeah. you know, of, of your background, as you're describing your background of leaving, you know, academia and going to work as like a technical writer. Uh, when you did learn Saunders' biography, did you feel a little more of a kinship there? Yeah, I was thinking that too, and you were talking about it. Like, <laughs> Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, his work experience is much more exotic than mine. Um, spent some time like in the oil fields of Sumatra and uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, playing in a bar band and other things that are just sort of like seem very Saunders-esque and wild and fun. But then he sort of came back and started a family and was working as a technical writer. So yes, that part of it, I was just like, for sure. And he also talks in the interviews about how being sort of a working father helped keep him focused like that when he had free time to do his writing whether he was sort of stealing it during his lunch hour or like on the commute home or whatever it helped him to like sort of be driven um and to just like work on it like a job um which very much resonated with me uh especially in my in my younger years uh as i sort of started to get into it yeah, and that comes up in one of the interviews in particular. I'm thinking of the Zadie Smith one where Zadie has got two young kids at home, obviously, and she's sort of asking him, who's a little farther down the road of raising two kids of like, how the hell did you do this? Like, this is so, you know, dispiriting sometimes and feels impossible. And maybe before we get into the inner interviews themselves uh let's talk about your interest in saunders and how you came to him was it through you know his first book came out around the same time as infinite jest so i sort of relate them you know as being on sort of parallel paths in a lot of ways um but just just talk about your interest in that was it when you were in grad school or or what was the story there yeah, I actually kind of came to Saunders relatively late. Like I had read a couple of his stories, you know, in Best American or uh, maybe in the New Yorker just over the years, but I had never sat down and read one of his collections um, until 10th of December came out. So like 2013, maybe. Um, my brother, my older brother, uh, you know, uh, sent me an email around uh, then. It was like, you know, we emailed back and forth about various books and he'd send me an email being like, hey, have you read this 10th of December George Saunders. And I was like, oh, I've seen that name, but I've never sat down to read him before. Um, so I went and picked it up. And I mean, it really did kind of blow my mind. It was it was sort of like reading Infinite yes, Jets and just like read nuts. it. You're just like, damn, this is so good. Like, yeah. it's just, um, this is something, yeah. How have I missed this before? Um, and then, yeah, it turned into one of those, just like, I read that and I was like, oh, I got to turn around and I got to read, I got to read it all. Um, so I read my way through all of his you know, short story collections pretty rapidly after that. Um, 
Yeah, I think. But then I, I never. Oh, sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. Keep going. Oh yeah, no. I was gonna say, but I I hadn't thought about doing like scholarly work on him um, until a couple of years later uh, at Loyola, like after I'd already left. But um, the there's this Hank Center for the Catholic Intellectual Tradition um, that is like housed at Loyola, and they were having Saunders. Uh, come out they were doing a day conference on his work um, and so when I heard that he was coming I was like oh I should put together you know they had some they had scholarly panels and then they were, he was giving like a writing talk and a reading in the evening um, this was when uh, Lincoln and the Bardo had just come out so they actually like staged a reading with like actors in the evening at the theater where they like acted out or performed sections from Lincoln and the Bardo um, but then during the day that this academic conference, so I, I was like, oh, I want to come and hang out and meet Saunders. So I wrote um, a talk about him as a, uh, like George Saunders's diagnostic fictions, I think something like that. It was actually tangentially related to the, to the Wallace essay from Christian literature. Again, of just like, here's this writer who's writing, yeah, these, in Walker Percy's term, sort of diagnostic fiction. So what's wrong with society and how do we fix it? Um, and so, yeah, so I wrote a paper and then got to talk to Saunders about it that day because he was there, which was pretty awesome. And I think that's a totally legit reason to write an academic paper is to try to meet the, <laughs> the author. I think there's plenty of people who, who would uh, do the exact same thing. So I applaud your uh industriousness yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah and actually um you know he he wasn't there for like the academic parts um i'm sure he was doing fun things in chicago but then when i met him um and when we all like there was a group of us that went to dinner and he was like oh so you know what did you talk about today and i said well i, I gave a talk that i sort of argued that you were a catholic writer and he said oh no i said i gave a talk to see about whether or not you were a catholic writer and he said, oh, well, what did you decide? And I said, I think that maybe you are. And he said, yeah, I think that makes sense to me too. And I was like, oh, great. <laughs> That's really validating. I can run uh, with that. So, he didn't uh, slap you? That's good? <laughs> he's like, no, Catholicism, out. Um, no. He's no, very generous about Catholicism in, in these interviews, in this collection, right? Like he's, he seems indebted to it. You know, if he, if he doesn't like practice it currently, he seems like he really, a lot of the themes resonate for him right yeah he, uh, it's something that again like as i started i mean this is sort of why i ended up putting the book together is because when i first started writing this conference paper you know whenever i write a conference paper i always go to the interviews i think hearing what authors have to say about their own work is really interesting um and so you know i was scouring through the internet finding a whole bunch of interviews and if and in a fair number of them he would mention sort of his Catholic upbringing and how important he found it um, and how much it sort of shaped his worldview, even if he is no longer practicing like communion taking Catholic. Um, and so I just found that really interesting. And also that stuff, the interviews themselves were like, like his actual writing, just like really funny and wise. Um, so I started to just like save them in a file on my computer. And I was like, oh, that's, yeah, I could read this again. Uh, and then once I had a bunch of them, I was like, hmm, wait a second is this is this something i mean so it really hat tip to mike miley and, and matt luter because you know i knew them through the wallace stuff and when i saw they were coming out with conversations with steve erickson i 
sent both of them a Twitter message just to be like, hey, how did this work? <laughs> what was the process like? Because uh, I, you know, I've read, of course, the Wallace one and then Walker Percy, I think had two volumes of conversations with Walker Percy. And there's a conversation with Flannery O'Connor and there's a conversation with Tim Cattrall. And I used all of these when I was working on uh, my dissertation. And so um, I was like, these books are really helpful and interesting. And they don't have one, as far as I know, on Saunders. I had never like pitched a book to somebody like that before. So I reached out to Mike and Matt to be like, what did you do? Who do you contact? And they were super helpful. Cool. So you pitched University of Mississippi Press about it and they were enthusiastic and they were like, yeah, let's yeah, go. yeah, yeah, that's exactly <laughs> how it went. Okay. Cool. They gave me a contact name and I sent them an email or this woman, Mary Heath, an email. It's like, hey, do you have anybody who's doing a George Saunders volume? And if not, are you interested in that? And like immediately they're like, we don't and we are. And I was like, fantastic. And then like, there was like radio silence for six months or something like that after that. I was like, um, okay. But uh, well, you know, yeah, I think it's unique where Saunders is obviously still uh, alive and publishing and there is a nascent, you know, Saunders society affiliated with ALA that is, you know, I think in some ways following our trajectory of Wallace um, with the big difference that you know, there, there's obviously like more academic interest at the moment still in Wallace than in Saunders as a single author society. But I think the trajectory for his long-term career is still very much uh, in progress. And I think it's going to be interesting to see how that shakes out over time. You know, if he publishes more novels, obviously he will continue to write more stories. And I was going to get your take on this of where you see that going with his career because I, I think that he's basically stopped teaching and moved to California. Um, he has moved to California. He still teaches. Um, it's like an intensive course, I think, where some of it is online and then he shows up for the weekend or a week or something and works with his students. Um, but yeah, yeah he's no longer like at Syrac Yeah. He's not at Syracuse like full time. He's now, he sold that house and has moved out to California full time, but goes back. Um, yeah, to teach, you know, I think a couple of weeks a year at this point. Um, but do you think he'll write another novel or stick to the stories or who knows? Or... <laughs> yeah, who knows? Um, we just got Liberation Day this week. So he just came out with a short story collection again this week. Right. Um, yeah. So it's an interesting time to be talking about him, right? Because <laughs> yeah. talking about interviews, because there's just like another, of course, explosion of like new Saunders interviews because... He's out there doing yeah. promotion for the book. Um, totally. And he did a lot I, during COVID too, it seemed like. Yeah, yeah. He Everyone was, was like, George, how do we get through this? You're so wise. You're the most heartening man in the world. You all make us feel glad to be alive. Like, how are you thinking about this time? <laughs> and that was yeah, actually right. really helpful that, for I, me it, during the pandemic too. It's true. He is sort of just like this, maybe like wisdom figure, I think right now. People... Um, turn to him for like comfort and solace and insight yeah i think both because like he is super wise and smart but also he like does a good job of depicting what's wrong with society right now and people yeah. recognize that um, yeah his uh percentage of levity mixed in with all that stuff is just perfect right like he doesn't take yeah. it all too seriously but he's uh, yeah go going yeah. back to that career trajectory question um you know your story of coming to him is interesting to me um 
and that I perceived his trajectory a little bit differently because I remember reading Civil Warland and Bad Decline when it came out in 1996. And I read that before Wallace and it was linked to me by 97. You know, there were a trio of books that were often grouped together, like in reviews, like when those books came out, Infinite Jest was often grouped with Civil Warland and Bad Decline and Fight Club. And Fight Club also came out in 1996. And it seemed to me, you know, looking back, I don't know, even a year or two later, three years later, like those books were still being bought and read in, I don't know, on the bestseller list, but they were on the front table of bookstores together often. And Fight Club and Civil Warland and Bad Decline had a lot more in common to me than the other ones. So then it was interesting to see Saunders sort of not become, you know, Chuck Palahniuk. Um, but become sort of his own person, right? And that uh, I, I, I just wonder if you could you could speak a little bit to that that trajectory that he he went from, you know, being published in the Kenyan Review to in the New Yorker. Like he really did gain this prestige, you know. Yeah, um, I can't really speak to the Chuck Palahniuk. Pal- I never enough. read his stuff. He's always been one of those writers where I'm like. Eh. It's fine. Yeah, I've never read anything by him either. Yeah. There's a have... kind of a level of disdain that a lot of people I know seem to have for his work. So I've just kind of like steered clear for that reason, I guess. I mean, oddly enough, he was born on the exact same day as David Foster Wallace, Chuck Palahniuk. Oh, really? February wow. 21st, 1962. 62, huh? Um, hmm. So they're also linked together sometimes with that. Um, obviously different types of work, but keep, keep going on the Saunders bit at least. Yeah, Um his career is interesting. I mean, there aren't a lot of writers who are really short story masters who become like critically and popularly successful like he has. Like, I, yeah, maybe Alice Monroe, maybe. Um, hmm. And so, I, I mean, I don't really, I can't really explain it other than that they're really good. <laughs> like his short stories are really good and also accessible um, in ways that maybe some other more uh, difficult short story writers aren't. Like his stories are weird and some of them are very like strange and maybe off-putting, but like in general, you don't need to like have a degree in English literature to like understand a George Saunders story, right? Like you can read it and be like, oh, that's funny and strange. And he does such a good job of like bringing you into whatever world he has created um, that it's pretty easy to respond to them. But I can't like, I don't know why. I mean, I think you reading the interviews, he doesn't know why, right? Like, obviously he cares about his craft. He's really good at it, but like, it's, why is he the guy who's become, um, you know, the one person who gets their new short story collection on like the front table at Barnes and Noble? I don't know. Um, Well, I I think, you know, for for me, it's somewhat linked just to the MFA program, right? And that you write stories there and you're in this workshop where you have to spend a lot of time and that sort of system, you know, Mark McGurl, I don't know if you've read Mark McGurl, like goes back to like, you know, Raymond Carver changed a lot of the game publishing in the New Yorker and, 
you know, you see this sort of trajectory then of people writing to get paid that way. It was a very good paycheck, very consistent, whereas like publishing novels, very hard to do, takes often many years to publish one. And then if it flops, like your career is over. And this is like, I think part of the reason, you know, Updike published a lot of short stories is like, it was nice to get paid like multiple times a year rather than once a year with a book or twice a year, you know, every two years. So I, I wonder if there's something practical to that, but I don't really know either on the prestige angle, but. Yeah. Know. I mean, I think he's, he's talked about how just like, it's, it's the kind of writer he is, you know, that he's taken cracks at writing longer novels before Lincoln, which is its own kind of weird thing. I mean, it's sold as a novel, but it's, it's a lot of Unlike fragments. Any other novel, right? <laughs> it's a lot like of fragments. It's, it's, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's it's not. <laughs> it's not normal. It's not. It's not two characters going on like a regular journey. It's made up of these like pastiche of of fragments of real and invented source text. Like it's. I mean, I think it's fantastic, but like, that's bizarre. Not, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. I mean, it looks. You open it up, and it looks more like a screenplay, or yeah, you know, totally. You know, and like the audiobook had how many play. different voice actors? Like over a hundred or something? Yeah, yeah, 250, exactly. 200, yeah. Um, wow. So yes, but I mean, you know, he's talked about how he wanted to write just like normal, more traditional novels and it just didn't work for him. Like his own his own style or gift or whatever is, is well suited to the short story form. Um, yeah, and that comes up a lot throughout this collection too. Everyone's like, "How come you haven't written a novel yet? How come you haven't written a novel yet?" <laughs> right, right. Yeah, <laughs> and finally, writes a novel, and then the last several interviews are about Lincoln. Or so yeah, uh, yeah. It's like you an, did it. Another writer I would put in that category. I don't know if you've read is David Means, and David Means published a ton of books of short stories and stories in the New Yorker and, you know, is less well-known than Saunders, but is super successful. And then I think in like 2016, he also did publish a novel just because like every time he would do an interview, people would be like, when are you going to publish a novel? When are you going to publish? Have you ever thought about writing a novel? When are you going to publish a novel? And he's like, <laughs> okay, I did it. Now can I go back to the stories? <laughs> right, <laughs> this is what yeah. I'm really good this at. This is what I'm good at. Yeah. yeah. Um, the thing that I wanted to, ask you about as you were putting together these i mean you say kind of in the intro that there were a lot to choose from can you talk a little bit about your process and which ones you did include and why yeah i have this question too he says you said there's literally hundreds you could have chosen from right and you end up with 14 so yeah yeah Yeah. that's big that's a big body of work to have to deal with yeah the you know this is like i think the most interesting part from like the my own perspective was this process of selection and a few different things go into it. I mean, there's just like the absolute, um, one of the things that matters is the budget from the press is not very big. So you can't just go to, you know, the big glossy magazines or wherever he's done an interview and be like, Hey, these are the, you know, the big ticket ones. Uh, let's use all of them because, and you have pay royalties pay to those. Yeah, yeah, oh, you yeah, yeah. buy them. So that was like one factor. But to be totally honest, like there weren't a lot that I wanted that I didn't end up getting. Um, I went back, you know, to like the earliest days that I could find. Some of the early Saunders interviews are like, you know, a page in a local newspaper or something like that. And I'm like, well, that's not <laughs> going to be that interesting. You yeah. know, um, he'll say something in that that is 
he says again in a longer, more substantive interview later. Um, but I did want to have interviews that sort of covered the breadth of his career. Um, you know, obviously he did a, like literally, you know, 50 interviews or whatever around 10th of December because it got like, I don't know, it was the front page of the New York Times somewhere. Um, somebody was like, this is the best book of the year. And so then everybody wanted to interview him and it was a bestseller. And then similarly, when Lincoln and the Bardo came out, um, there was just tons and tons and tons. But I didn't want to have a bunch of interviews from the same time period, both because he says a lot of the same things over and over again. Um, but also, it just, I thought, would be more interesting from for both his fans who just wanted to hear from him and also scholars who are, might be interested in the breadth of his career to like have interviews that spanned the length of his career. So I tried to get stuff from each, you know, each book more or less as they came out. Um, so that was one element of it was just trying to find something from, you know, around uh, the release of each collection. Uh, and then I would just read them all and find out what I thought was the most substantial or where he said something really interesting or funny or compelling. Um, and I had this, you know, very large saved file on my computer of just like Saunders interviews. And then there was just like the detective work of trying to track down, okay, who owns this interview? Where was this published? Is this website still active? Sometimes <laughs> yeah. they aren't. Um, you yeah. know, was the journal this came out in or the lit mag, you know, yeah. you guys know what lit mags are like. So some of them have closed and you're just like, okay, well then right, this magazine yeah. doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. Who has the rights to it? Who has um, this? Yeah. How do I find them? Just yeah. take it. It's finders keepers. <laughs> <laughs> Public domain. Yeah, Were there many cases? The <laughs> <laughs> Were there many cases for you, Michael, where like the interviewer made you choose that interview? Like I think of the Roy Kessie one, like he's really funny and the questions are wild and he's almost more entertaining in some ways than Saunders is in that interview. Uh, Maria Bustios as well, her like interviewing and her questions are awesome. And like, you can just see that conversation play out in such like an interesting, like she's just fan fangirling the whole time, which is totally what, you know, I would do too, if I was interviewing someone like Saunders, but. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think, I don't know if I put this in the introduction or not, but like Saunders sort of talks about the process of the interview as sort of a dance and like the best interviews are ones where both the interviewer and the interviewed, um, you know, are, are obviously enjoying the experience and where both of them are bringing something to the table. And yeah, I mean, the Maria one for sure, I think as Wallace uh, listserv folks know Maria Bustillos. And yeah, so, totally. Um, that was that fun was to see her in there. When I saw that she had one, I was like, oh, cool. And then I read it, I'm like, oh, this is great. Like, yeah. I really, really enjoyed this. Um, so yeah, that definitely is was part of it. It's not just what Saunders is saying, but sort of, you know, if you're if he, if one is doing 20 interviews in like two weeks, I would imagine that you rise to the occasion when somebody like comes with the good questions or like a really interesting perspective or enthusiasm about the subject as opposed to somebody who's like i'm interviewing you for my podcast but i've never read your book and i don't really care that much but you're here so let's talk um and there's some of those too where you're like this guy obviously has not read saunders stuff i'm not going to use this because like it's all kind of boilerplate um so yeah there's you know the the interplay between both sides definitely helps um, yeah 
That's well, good. In the interviews, when I got the book, I immediately went to the table of contents and looked at who the other interviewers were, right? And I I think with a book like this, it doesn't you don't necessarily have to read it in order. That's a great thing. You can jump around a bit. Um, and so like I started with the Ben Marcus one and like, mm. I just think Ben Marcus is amazing. And like, I maybe sort of remembered that one from the believer, but I was like, I want to read that first. Yeah. And then I saw Maria's name. I was like, Oh, holy shit. And my friend Maria. Um, uh, <laughs> so I was like, I definitely want to read Maria's thing. And she did an amazing interview with Anthony Bourdain as well. And like, oh, she, she? she's a mm. great interviewer. Uh, but then oh, at the end, you Zadie know, the, Smith, the Zadie the Smith one, and also yeah. the, the Benjamin Nugent one, I mean, from the Paris Review, I think that's a great one to end on because it is so substantive and like, obviously Paris Review carries like a ton of weight as sort of the gold standard of doing a review. I mean, an yeah. inter- interview. Yeah. So like those last two, I was super psyched to be able to get both of them because it was like Zadie Smith, like Zadie Smith and George Saunders in conversation. How cool is this? Um, and then... Yeah, I wasn't sure about the Paris Review. Like, uh, again, just like from a financial perspective, I wasn't sure if we were going to be able to like swing that, but it wasn't, they didn't charge us that much. I think they're like, oh, it's for a small, you know, academic press. They were, it was very reasonable, which was great. Cause yeah, it's like, as, as the closer, really substantial. I mean, he's a fantastic interviewer. They get into a lot of different things. It just felt like a really great way to like bring all of these different themes that have been touched on throughout the book together. Um, which was very cool. And I totally agree, you, you know, this is a very much jump around, uh, you know, pick and choose. Um, and then like some of the interviews that probably were people you don't, one does not know, I, you know, they're in there for a reason. I think some of the stuff that's in there from people who I was unfamiliar with, are just like, oh, this is really interesting or good. Yeah, like uh, Dave brought up the one with uh, Roy Kesey. I don't know if that's in relation to Ken Kesey, but, um, I also really liked the one from the white review. Um, so the Roy Kesey one was in Maud Newton, modnewton.com, big blog, you know, back in the day, Maud just came out with her first book ever, by the way, which is amazing. I have called Ancestor Trouble, but um, the white review one is, uh, what's the interviewer's name? Is that Aiden Ryan's? Yeah, Aiden Ryan. I thought that was a really, you know, fantastic interview that like i probably would not have read otherwise so i really liked the the care that went into this and so that you didn't have a lot of the same repeats i think it's really hard like if you were to go and interview george saunders now to prepare you'd say like okay what questions does he get asked over and over and over like what themes come up over and over and over it's really hard to ask him something like that he's never been asked that matters you know yeah, so it's funny. Um, you know, there's always the possibility with these kind of volumes of doing conducting your own interview. Um, and I think he probably would have been game. I after reading all these interviews, I was like, I don't know what I would ask him that he yeah, hasn't totally. answered somewhere. Like, I it yeah. felt very like That'd be intimidating because I was mm-hmm. like, I've heard him answer any of the things that I would sort of be interested in. He's already talked about somewhere, which is probably a failure of the imagination on my part. I'm sure there's things that I could find, but it was. I, I did find it to be like, yeah, I think I, I think these cover it. This is good. <laughs> totally, totally. Um, and and he's so quotable. Like to be able to come up with really pithy quotes in every single interview, I felt like there was something that I underlined and starred, and I was just like, damn, how does he keep doing this over and over? And every yeah. single time, totally. he's just so quotable. Like so many great quotes in there. 
Yeah, it makes me yeah. think that a lot of these must have been email interviews because the level of articulation that you can include in, in a response when you're just like have time to type it out is a lot heightened, a lot more heightened. So yes, yeah, there, it is. It's a mix. Um, yeah, I don't think any of these in the end were like podcast interviews. I did listen to a fair amount, but I didn't include any of those because they were not edited down. Like they're all ones that were in print. And a lot of them were conducted over email, which is what he says he likes to do the best because totally. it gives him the yeah. time to sort of reflect and think and not just kind of shoot from the hip. Yeah, um, it's nicer. Yeah. But he also, there's a, I think I put this in the introduction, but, you know, he sort of, I, I had asked him via email, like, you know, how do you handle it when somebody asks you the same question over and over and you've come up with a good response? Do you just like say it again? <laughs> and he, I mean, he basically said, yeah, like once you've, you know, come up with, a good response, a little bon mot to drop on somebody, like it's okay to use it again. Most of the people who are reading this thing aren't going to read all of your interviews. They're not going to know that you're trotting it out. Yeah, they're not all complete <laughs> Saunders completionists. Right. Or something. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, uh, what's uh what other level of involvement did George himself have in this collection coming together? Um, I mean he was very supportive. Uh and you know he said if I need if I needed him to reach out to anyone, he would be willing to do so. Um, but oh, nice. I don't think in the end he had that he had to. He sent me his like CV because in the beginning, you know, they, the press asks for sort of this like timeline of the writer's life. Um, so I put one together and he read that over and like corrected a couple of little things like the year of this or that just to kind of make sure that it was all totally accurate. Um, but he didn't have any input on like which interviews I chose. I sent him the list at some point. It was like, I'm, I'm going to use these ones or I'm thinking of using these ones. And he was like, those look great. Um, I'm not sure if you really remember them or not. <laughs> but um, oh. yeah, no, I mean, he was a couple of different times I had to send him an email just like with a little question. But it was really amazing how like quick he was at responding. Um, I found that to be like both kind of surprising and also really nice that he would within 24 hours get back to me. Um, yeah, I've had a couple emails with him over the years too. And yeah, I was first of all surprised he responded ever at all. And then, yeah, the right. speed and the attention and like the wit of just writing, you know, five to six sentences, like you, you gave this some thought, this is really cool. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I think Very, that it, um, it, it helps that he's a teacher and, and he has to communicate with a lot of different other writers and professionals pretty much constantly in his job and yeah. also to like say insightful stuff about fiction and art like that's his job so it makes sense that like he's good at it and he's over the years of like decades he's clearly distilled and perfected a lot of his you know wisdom into really clear ideas like i never felt like he was trying to work out a problem he can resort to this buddhist thing of like well i'm a beginner we're all just sort of you know befuddled in a good way but he, when it comes to actually saying what fiction's job is supposed to be or how a story works like he's got that down yeah and he also defers to check off a lot too on those questions of art and purpose right like yeah, you just tell yeah. he's such a Chekhov fanboy all the time <laughs> in all his interviews. It's, it's great. Yeah. Have either of you read um, his Swim in the Pond in the Rain, like his book on writing? Yeah, yeah, I read the whole thing. I, I read some of it, and then I got yeah. his newsletter. He has a Substack, you know, and like, yeah. oh, I was yeah. like, there's even more of it in there. And I was just like, 
I would care more if I was like in an MFA program, but I'm not. So yeah, that's totally fair. It feels very much like for a class, you know, like, but as like a yeah, teacher, I mean, someone who teaches literature, sometimes I found it really helpful and like, oh, I could use a lot of this stuff I you know, also as a teacher. Like, yeah. some of this totally. Time. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's like pro D, you know, reading Saunders and reading mink. his interviews. <laughs> I was like, give me an actual Saunders story rather than a class. Right. Yeah. yeah that's, mean, that's totally fair too. I think, I think there's room for both, right? Like he is, I think a really um, smart and articulate teacher and like person about writing um, and the insights yeah. that he like is gleaning from these other stories. I'm also on the sub stack. And so like, you know, he does these close readings of various stories on there too. And you're just like, man, these are great. Like it's just really smart um, attention uh, being paid to the craftsmanship of these works. Uh, but I also, you know, if given a choice would just be like, yeah, sure. I would rather just read the Saunders short stories. Like his stories are fantastic. I love them. Yeah, so. it's a bit more fun for sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, speaking of his stories, this is something we kind of gave you some advanced warning of, but I'd love to get just kind of like, what are your top five like Saunders stories? Or if someone hasn't read a single Saunders story, like where, where should they start? Yeah, I mean... I honestly don't think you can go wrong, right? Like I think any Saunders story is going to be a good story. My personal fave, so I have a top five, not in any necessarily in order um, of like a ranking, but if somebody was like, where do I start? I would probably start with Civil Warland and Bad Decline, like the actual story. Yes, I agree. Um, I agree hundred percent. It's so bonkers good. I absolutely yeah. adore that. It's probably yeah. my number one favorite of his. Yeah, me too. It's like sort of the Ur Saunders story. It has all of the things that Saunders does really well. Um, you know, it's set in a theme park. It's a bunch of theme park stories. Yeah. It has like weird ghosts. ghosts who are there doing stuff. It's interesting, the ghosts. Every time he writes about them. <laughs> it's interesting, the ghosts. Oh, I think you should leave. Um... Hey, someone got it. Yes. <laughs> um, but anyways, yeah. So yeah, ghosts like just sort of surprising and horrific violence um but also this like transformation of self um i don't know it's just this fantastic beautiful story yeah uh, so and going back to the the i think you should leave sketch it just kind of dawned on me that like in a george saunders short stories it is possible that some of these fuckers could pop out of the walls and just like <laughs> have a big load of come or whatever right like that that basically happens in little lincoln and the we're, bardo we're gonna cut this later. there's like the ghost scene <laughs> and like it is the basically bardo. Lincoln so the bardo. there's just, yeah, just yeah. walking around with a raging heart on for the entire that's right <laughs> yeah I mean, it's the ghosts um we'll tweet no, uh tim robinson to see if, if uh that I'm was trying to give anyone the worst day they've ever had <laughs> Good job. i have a question uh so number one, Civil War Land and Bad Decline. I think we all agreed that's absolutely amazing story. And like you said, it encapsulates so much of what themes that he covers later in his career, just how good he is. Great yeah. choice. And, and then I sort of, in my mind, pair that with this story, Com Com, um, from In Persuasion Nation. I don't know if you guys have read that, but it also- That's such a great collection. That's I the just, first thing I read by I Saunders. I just reread that, that um, recently. Oh, yeah. Nice. Yeah, I think that's my favorite book of his. Um, it's so good. Rereading that book recently, I felt like um, 
it, it could have been an Adam Levin book and Adam mm. Levin being a student of Saunders and at yeah. Syracuse, while I think uh, Saunders was working on this book, I actually feel like there's a lot of overlap with, mm. you know, the, the really like corporate name stuff, the bizarre creatures that show yeah, up. Yeah. Bubblegum um, most totally. similarly strikes me. So, yeah. Totally. Um, but the, they're the weirdness in it. You know, I feel like there are some story writers who can pull that off really well and some that it just feels added on or like weird for the sake of being weird as most is definition of postmodern. Um, uh, but I'd, I'd never felt like it was gratuitous, at least in, the, in that book or in that story, ComCom. Yeah, I mean, the stuff that, that happens in Persuasion Nation is real weird. Um, there's, you know, talking... Uh, uh, what's the word for like the like the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man or like the um, it's like anthropomorphized maybe yeah yeah like not slogans but like you know for corporate mascots or something yeah mass yeah corporate yeah. mascots yeah. like the slap of whack and stuff like just really weird stuff um, or like the Coca Cola Bears like those things like that talking to each other and harming each other um, stuff that happens in this book is like far stranger than almost any other book. Um, but it just really, I found it very affecting and it really worked. And anyways, ComCom ends in, um, I think one of the most like beautiful passages in all of his work where like, you know, the, the bad guy has murdered our narrator and our narrator's friend, but like the narrator's friend like comes back to him and saves him. And it's just this beautiful sense of like the communion of souls. I don't know, I just, I find it to be just absolutely top shelf. It's sort of like he takes the themes from Civil Warland and Bad Decline, but like takes it one step farther. Um, mm. And it's like a little less cynical. And I think it's really <laughs> cool. Yeah. Um, so those two are both like pretty weird. And then more normal stories, like more realist stories that I think are really good um, would be The Falls from Pastoralia, like the last story in that collection about two different narrators who are like out for a walk and they both see um, these two girls in a canoe who are about to be swept over the falls and like how they respond to this crisis um, is another just like very beautiful, very moving story. Um, have, you, have you guys read that one? Yeah, I remember mm -hmm. reading the story and th um, thinking of there's a similar scene in um, uh Darjeeling Limited, where there's like kids drowning. Oh, look at these assholes. And, right. And they, they're they going to run and like, are we going to have to jump in the river and save these kids? And like they do. Yeah. But one of them, like my kid doesn't make it. One of them doesn't yeah. make it. And I just remember your brodies. And that story is also, I felt like could have been like a Dennis Johnson story. Like it's very lyrical story, very um, bleak and sad in a lot of ways that his, you know, you, you associate him with like, this really funny over the top stuff or really benevolent and kind stuff. And then every once in a while, he does surprise you with some really just fucking sad stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Like there is this sort of, I think, popular idea of it being like, of Saunders himself being sort of this like wise, warm, kind person. But no, the stories are often super sad and bleak. And yeah. And that comes up a lot throughout these interviews in the collection, doesn't it? Everyone's like, you're such a mellow, nice dude. Why are your stories so, <laughs> so, so dark, dark and, and yeah, weird? Yeah. yeah. Like, no, the world's kind of a fucked up place. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, and like, yeah, that story is about, you know, these two guys 
both of whom are like super in their own heads. One who thinks he's a, you know, this great writer and one who thinks he kind of just sucks at life. And of course it's like the guy who thinks that he sucks that actually tries to save the girls. Um, and even though you know he's going to fail, it's still just like, well, he's at least doing something and it's, I don't know. It's so there's an action. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Um, and then, I, I don't know, in my own head, and maybe it doesn't translate to others, but I sort of associate 10th of December, like the, the actual story in that collection with that same idea of like a mostly realist story um, that brushes up against mortality, but um, features two different narrators. And it's just like, I don't know. That one is also sort of dark, but like a little more hopeful. Um, it's, it's, I think, one of his best. Yeah, and that story to me, I, I could. You mentioned Alice Monroe earlier, and I could actually see that almost being like an Alice Monroe story, and that she often uses the multiple narrators as well. I don't know if you've read many of her stories, but a lot of them are these like really troubled people, you know, who, who get into more trouble. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've been read a ton of hers, but like, yeah, that fits the stuff that I have read. Uh, yeah, you know people who have difficulties, you know, the, the main character of 10th of December is this um, older, well, he's not super old, but he, he comes across as old, who's dying of cancer, and he, he is going to go commit suicide by exposing himself uh, to the elements because he doesn't want to be a burden on his family. Um, and then he ends up having to, like, save this kid who's out for a walk in the woods and falls into the river. And, you know, the act of having to think about and care about somebody beyond himself uh, sort of like shocks the dying man into realizing that it's okay to be dependent on others and like they're not going to resent him if they have to care for him while he is dying um yeah again it's not like happy but it sort of is as you read it like if the themes are all really uh weighty but um i don't know like ultimately is... philanthropic right yeah yeah. Well, I, I think that there's a lot, you know, I was going to ask you about this too, of like the idea of the self and the ego, like that it could be a very egotistical act. And then usually it's someone who's trying to get out of their own head or to, you know, maybe that's a Buddhist idea of like getting, uh, being less self-centered in a very direct way and like being less, uh, the thing of falling in the pond or falling in the water too is also like a common thing in the, it's a wonderful life. Like it could be very sappy, like it could be very cheesy thing, but I think it is a very um, direct way of showing like, are you going to help other people on this life? Are you going to, uh, what are you going to do with your life? You know? Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I think the wonderful life connection is actually really resonant. It's actually resonant for the faults too. Just like, yeah, somebody's suffering, somebody's in trouble. You know, can you forget about yourself um, and act? You know, can you can you be in the world, or are you just so wrapped up in your own self that you're like unable to transcend yourself when you need to? Uh, which is definitely a Buddhist idea, but there is also you know Catholic resonances to it, which is yeah, absolutely yeah um, yeah. My own my own interest is like oh yeah, these these themes. Um, yeah, I thought a lot about, um, have you read Brian Moore's Catholics, Michael? Yeah. Yeah, I thought a lot about that book as I was reading this collection because Buddhism and, and Catholicism keep like dovetailing throughout the interviews. And I just kept sure. thinking about like the way that book, which was one of Wallace's favorite books, he like recommended it to people. That's how I yeah. discovered it. It's Me like too. the future Vatican Council decides that like Buddhism and Catholicism like should be woven together essentially to create kind of like a new 
and that's like the the future of Catholicism. So I just yeah, that's a yeah. that's a cool book for people to check out if the, if that kind of stuff interests them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there, there's the great Catholic writer Thomas Merton also was very interested in Buddhism and mm-hmm. the connections between the Eastern and Western spirituality. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, there's all these congruences um, for people who are interested in such things. All right, so we got four stories from you. Give it, give, give us yeah. one more. So then the other one I would say um, is is Lincoln and the Bardo. Is like do it. You know, I wouldn't jump. I wouldn't start there because again, it's real weird. Um, yeah, I agree with that. Like this is the first <laughs> way I got into Saunders. It would be like, oh, that surprises me. Yeah, yeah, um, totally. But like once you're sort of on his wavelength, I think what he does there is is just um, kind of mind blowing especially mm-hmm. like the first time I read it, I was like, this is weird. I don't know what I felt about it. And then I read it again and I was like, oh no, this is fantastic. This is like a work of genius. Um, yeah. And if you have children, like it hits hard, you know, I, I can't remember if I read it before we had Flannery and might've read it before that, or she was very young, but I feel like it would hit you as a parent in different ways. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, the, the sort of main theme is, it's set amongst a bunch of ghosts in this graveyard and they're all like lingering instead of moving on to the afterlife. They don't know that they're dead. Um, and then Abe Lincoln's son is, you know, buried and joins them in the graveyard and kids are mm-hmm. supposed to move on right away, but he lingers because Abe comes and like holds his body. Um, mm-hmm. And so the boy doesn't want to move on. He wants to stay and be with his father. And then the ghosts have to sort of convince him that he needs to move on. Mm-hmm. Um, because if it stays, it's bad for kids to linger. And so, you know, before yeah, I mean, that, but that book came out, I had no idea that this was a real story. Like I didn't actually know that, you know, Lincoln had a child who died while they were in the white house. And like, yeah, it was so shocking to me that it was, you know, it's historical fiction, but it's, there's a lot in it that is not fiction. That is yeah. real. There is a story that he goes and actually does like hold his body after he dies. Um, I think that part is you know, drawn from life. And so, yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, I just think about this a lot as, uh, you know, as we all have kids, the three of us at least have kids and like, you know, the, how the hell do you do anything after that? How the hell do you become, you know, a great president after that? And, you know, I'm sure there are a lot of stories of people who didn't, right? Like that they lost a child and that was it. Uh, there's a famous... World War II general named Rupertus, who this this happened, his wife and his kid died, and it was like that was it for him. It, it was the you know the light went out of his life, and he died shortly thereafter. Like the fact that Lincoln has this like deep melancholy in him, and yet sort of rallies beyond that. I think that's a great concept for a novel, um, but it is it turns out to be really like even more bizarre than you're pitching it here to be. <laughs> so like. <laughs> yeah well yeah because it it gets into sort of you know like why the ghosts are there and what they did in their lives and why they're hesitant to move on um and again that's sort of this buddhist idea of like being attached to your earthly life but it's also this catholic idea of like you know purgatory purgatory of things um Mm -hmm. yeah you think we'll ever see an adaptation of this book on film it would be and the audiobook kind of like approaches that in some ways it's so like theatrical right yeah yeah the, i mean the audiobook is wild and impressive um mm-hmm. it's hard to visualize what it would be like to do a movie 
yeah. think there's been a couple different times where like that people have tried to make Saunders stuff into into movies and, and most yeah Spiderhead all the way to I just to watched yeah. is that I based on Sea I've heard one of them is based on Sea Oak right the story sea oak. did Sea Oak did that ever come about I think that they were going to do like I, a TV show or something I don't think I don't it made think it, it ever did but Spiderhead just came out on Netflix and it's based on Escape from Spiderhead from 10th of December. And I yeah. read the reread the story and then I watched it like in one sitting. Uh, and the film captures a lot of the cool stuff going on in the story. The story is so good, Escape from Spiderhead. But the endings, like once you hit about the one third halfway point of the movie, they go in completely different trajectories. Oh, really? Um, and I'm not sure the yeah, ending I of Spiderhead captures Saunders' ethos the way that I wanted it okay. to. But there is a scene where there's a character in the movie reading 10th of December by George Saunders, like just kind of casually shows a character reading that book. So that's a funny little nod. That is funny. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a great story. Like, you know. Yeah, so good. Yeah, Dark and Flocks. And just the names, the way that Saunders can name uh, capitalist products is so right on. (laughs) Yeah. 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 I think the one interview that I included from the New Yorker in the book that is about Spiderhead. Oh yeah. There's also a mention in one of the interviews early on in this collection that Ben Stiller had optioned Civil Warland to be at, adapted, but I guess that never came about never either. Came I'm curious. I'm curious yeah. about what the story was with that. Yeah, I don't know where it went, but it didn't. Yeah. Uh, it didn't I'm happen. telling you, when that when that book came out in 1996, it was a hot property. Like it was on all of these <laughs> yeah. crazy mm. lists. Like I have no doubt that. It was just part of the the hype around it when the book came out. It looks like Sea Oak was made into a movie with Glenn Close. It's on Amazon. Wow. Oh, really? I'll have to go Whoa. watch it. Cool. Uh, I really like the story Sea Oak, and you no, know, it's in the New Yorker, right? Yeah, I think yeah. no, so I think it was you should a look into that. Movie. I feel like that might have been might have been a pilot, Matt. I think that they were going to do a show and they made a pilot and then it didn't get picked up. I could be wrong, but that might have been something different. Um, I know there was some Saunders thing where they made a pilot for the show and then the, it never got picked up so if it's just i'll see what the duration is on this but um i'm gonna go maybe that's it maybe they made it 32 minutes yeah yeah and you know there was a period where amazon was like we're gonna spend all the money on everything and so then they were like commissioned a bunch of pilots and then they were like vote Actually, on it or something <laughs> to the people and then it, yeah it never got past that point as far as i know um well, to your but list the, of, of favorite stories, the one that I, also I was thinking would make a great movie someday is uh, Simplica Girls. Oh, yeah. yeah. From 10th of December. Just a crazy, That is a wild story. Yeah. Crazy story. That's so yeah. good. Yeah. But the, one that like I think actually rewards rereading as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Uh, of, of like the Saunders stories that like everybody I think would be like, read this story. Simplica Girls. I think Spiderhead would probably be on there too. Just like these are weird premises that are just like super memorable and super well done um yeah they're, they're, those are both sort of top shelf uh yeah for sure in that way mm-hmm. all right mike i have one question for you about the talk of religion in this book saunders is constantly being asked about his kindness and niceness and his sort of ethics and morality maybe which was not helped by him doing a graduation speech which is also about kindness and niceness and you know ultimately what how do you take that what does it all mean and you know how should we think about saunders in terms of kindness 
Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I, in part, I think it's really interesting how much everybody wants to talk about it. Um, like, I guess there's a Wallace connection, right? That Wallace gave a graduation speech that everybody was like, this is great, let's talk about it. Let's publish it as a gift book form and like reflect on it. Cause it's a really rich text, but it's also just like a little speech. So Saunders gave the commencement address on being kind, which basically is like, the only thing that matters is being kind to people, you know, and it's much more articulately put than that, but that's what it boils down to, which of course is like this very general bromide. But everybody was like, oh man, like, talk about, talk more about this. And I, I think it's because it's in our society, one of those things that everybody knows matters, but is also really lacking, um, especially from somebody who's like in a central artistic position to be like, actually what really matters is being like a kind, thoughtful, good person. Probably doesn't get said that much, but everybody wants to hear it. And so people keep coming back to him to be like, tell us again to be kind, Master George. Um, which I think makes sense. I think everybody knows we should be better than we are. And that like a lot of contemporary culture is built around being snarky and mean um, or like developing hot takes or, uh, you know, going after somebody on Twitter and calling people out. And so having somebody who is just very deliberately saying the opposite of that or be thoughtful, be slow, take time, reflect, think about how you can be better than you normally would be by your default settings. Like, I think that's why it's resonated because we want somebody to tell us that. And of course, if we wanna like go bigger, deeper picture, it's like, since lots of people have stopped going to church and church is one place that like tells people to do that, it's nice to have somebody in sort of the rarefied air of academia or like leftist culture who is going to say the same thing and give us a reason to do that, um, which I mean, I think makes sense and isn't bad, but it is good to have somebody to tell us to be loving and kind and remind us that that's like why we're here. Um, I guess I authors have been saying similar things for a long time. Like there's the Chekhov quote on page 26 that art prepares us for tenderness. So these aren't like new ideas about like what fiction does or, but it seems like they're still like uh, universally celebrated, right? <laughs> like, yeah, in our, in our yeah. Moment. I mean, I think there's another part of it, right? That's like, for those of us who care about literature, it's nice to think that maybe it's an empathy producing machine. I don't, I don't, I go back and forth on whether or not I really believe that that's true. Like this is an idea that mm -hmm. runs through a lot of his interviews and like his nonfiction writing that like if you, pay careful attention to something, it will help build empathy, like that you'll under, you know, want to see people more richly, imagine them more deeply, um, and that'll help you to be a more empathetic human, which is a good value to have in life. Um, I would like to think that's true since I spent a lot of time reading and like, yeah, <laughs> or yeah. just like writing about that aspect of literature. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. Do you guys think it does? I, I Do you mean, think that I, reading can like make you a better person? I'm not totally, I want to believe that it's true, but I don't know if I do. Yes, I do. I think it can make you a better person in a lot of different ways. And I'm sure, again, all of us with kids, would you prefer that your kids learn that from fiction and literature and reading or from YouTube and watching TV? And I think that if you're going to at least attempt to educate and entertain and inform people about life and a rich inner life it's better to do attempt to do that uh, fiction than almost anything else so 
yes, I guess I'm a believer in it, but it's very difficult to justify or like articulate in a way. I'm not getting into like Hallmark territory and trying to talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you yeah, know, there's always that risk. I agree with that, like, Matt. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I agree too. Like I, I, I do. Although I wouldn't be like completely dismissive of YouTube only because there's YouTubers that I like, like the Green Brothers. The Green Brothers. Watch, I was, you know, yeah. John Green and his brother, yeah. Hank Green, and they like i wish my kids would watch that stuff but they're not watching that they're watching <laughs> other i use it as a teacher quite often like Twitch, crash course history Discord, that kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah instagram yeah, my, yeah i mean there's all, all sorts of terrible stuff for sure for sure but um, you mentioned the default setting and you know wallace obviously gave this really influential speech and wallace does come up several times in the book and i want to ask you about that because um, I remember going to Wallace's memorial in New York, 2008, George Saunders was there and it was very powerful for me when he stood up at that memorial, Wallace had only been dead a month and George Saunders, who is a few years older than Wallace said, and he's on stage with, you know, Don DeLillo and Zadie Smith and Jonathan Franzen. And he says, Saunders says he was the first the among, us. among us. He was yeah. the first among us first, yeah. and that he had something we were all trying to to be to imitate and again we wouldn't be having this conversation if it were not for david foster wallace studies and the fact that his work has brought so many other people together it's very hard for me not to compare almost anyone else i read with wallace and zadie smith brings it up uh several other people bring it up in the in the interviews and i wonder did you get the sense from saunders that that's somehow annoying to him or that he hates that comparison or or is it a how do you compare it yeah i mean i I mean i obviously can't speak for saunders but i don't think that he finds it annoying i mean i think that he probably still um acknowledges that sort of primacy of place for Wallace right I mean um, he seems to be flattered by the comparison anytime it comes up more than anything right yeah yeah I mean and and I do think I mean I don't know what my next book project is going to be but I've been toying about some sort of Wallace and Saunders twinned book it's just there are a lot of um, things they're both interested in and that they write about them similarly and I think that's what people it's not surprising to me that a lot of the people who love Wallace also love Saunders's stuff um, and vice versa, because I think totally. that there are two writers yeah. who um, aren't afraid to write about how screwed up society is and how broken <laughs> people are, but also like are not completely hopeless about the state of the world. Um, so I think, I don't know, I think that resonates for me anyways, as a reader of just of both of them um, and somebody who really loves both of their work, that that's something that, that, I find in both of them that really uh, matters to me. I feel like there's another part to your question. That well, I, 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 as you're saying that, I, uh, let's forget it. As, as you're saying that though, it makes me wonder in contrast to Wallace is that it's almost like Saunders has gone overboard in the other direction of being an unproblematic human being and that it's okay to <laughs> like so Saunders. And it's like, well, does he have any human flaws at all that he hasn't confessed and written about and absolved himself from? And he's not the sort of art monster the way that, you know, Wallace is and was. 
Oh yeah. man, can you guys imagine if something comes out on Saunders in like five years and he gets canceled? Like, I my heart would just like die for all eternity. Like, I can't trust anyone now. If Saunders is a monster, then no. He's one, a human being. No, though. I mean, can, I know. <laughs> but I just hope that never happens for him, especially you know, because then my faith in humanity will be like crippled for forever. It is like it's a real thing with everybody that I corresponded with who's ever like interacted or met Saunders. It's like this guy's so nice. Like, it's not. There was nobody who was like, had even the remotest bad thing to say about him. And I've met people who were his former students yeah. um, and they, you know, raved about him as a teacher who cared about them. And yeah, totally. yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's a difficult for those of us who love Wallace um, or at least love Wallace's work. There's been this sort of ongoing reckoning with the kind of person he was. And I don't, I, I did not know him as a person and there are all sorts of different varieties of takes, but obviously he did things in his life that were not great. Right. Um, and we don't see that with Saunders. So it's a lot easier to just be like, Saunders is a good dude and it's unproblematic to get life advice from him because he was clearly a good dude. Whereas with Wallace, it's a little bit like here he is, here he is telling us how to live, but maybe he couldn't do it himself. And so that can be, yeah, but, there, but there's your there. question for Saunders. You know, you were saying earlier, like, I can't imagine anyone asking Saunders something he hasn't been asked before, but that's something I haven't heard him address directly is like, you know, you he almost comes off as like a saint, right? And he's like, so uh, like a Buddha boy, right? Like people go to him as this oracle of, of great <laughs> advice. And yet he is like us all, uh, a, a flawed human being who's fallen short in a lot of ways, I'm sure. And sure. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are places where he talks about that, right? Like, right. I mean, this is something I might have even come up with the Nick Curley one, which is like the one from the Barnes and Noble website that was published about him in kindness. Like, I think that he does touch a little bit on this idea of like, how do you handle the fact that people keep coming to you to talk about being a good, kind person? And he does, you know, he makes the normal caveats about like being just like a regular person. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. I don't have a good take. It's just... I, I, I mean, it's it's a, it's an impossible question because it's really like, can you trust anyone? And can you, you know, can you put your your uh, your love of someone's work on par with, you know, their should it even matter if they're a good person or not? And uh, you know, why should we care what his personal life is like if you know we love his work? And I mean, for me, that's it. Sort of proves that point you know, with him that if he did, I don't know, pass bad checks, if he did, you know, slash someone's tires in a fit of rage, would that make me love his work any less? No. Yeah. I have, an, I have a theology question that I could ask as well, Please do. Um, which is a concern that you and I have talked a lot about over the years, Mike. Um, so in the Zadie Smith interview, there's, uh, she brings up the sort of dichotomy of the profane and the sublime particularly in Lincoln and the Bardo, which we sort of touched on a little bit. And that sort of reminded me a lot of like the sacred secular conversation in like in the history of Catholic theology, you know, like Thomas Aquinas, you know, putting, putting certain things in like the upper category, the upper story, uh, like God and angels and concepts like love and virtue. And then like the bathos down in the bottom story as being in a, in a different sphere or something. Um, how do you think Saunders work uh, for you sort of like weds these to sort of high low I don't know aesthetics or stories if you want to put it that way 
um, from like an academic or a the theological perspective? Like, where do you find those kind of moments of, I don't know, like grace and um, like everyday boredom or uh, mundane, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, one of the things that, that Saunders's work treats very overtly is this um, acknowledgement of a transcendent reality, often through stuff like the ghosts that are there. Um, yeah, totally. Like it's just treated as sort of matter of fact that we are not just like Matter. bodies. Yeah. <laughs> um, we're not just meat walking yeah. around doing things, but that there is, uh, you know, another dimension to reality. So a lot of the sort of yeah. uh, supernatural elements in his work function to sort of point the reader towards an acceptance of a transcendent reality. Um, so there's that aspect of it. And then there's just like a lot of his stories really are about sin and grace, about people who are just like in the real world doing screwed up things and then trying to get beyond it. Mm -hmm. And the way that they often do is usually um, through like very sacramental ways. Like a lot of his stories have a hinge of like a confessional element. I mean, it's like what makes Lincoln and the Bardo work. Um, the souls that are trapped there need to like ultimately confess to their failures in life before they can move on. Um, which is just, you know, a very Catholic idea. Uh, mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I have a lot to say about sort of the religious resonances of it, which is probably going to work its way out in an article. Into a or book, book or something. Or something. <laughs> yeah, um, totally. yeah. Cool. I'll stay tuned for your fuller answer then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So as a little plug, I, I have a book that's coming out um, from Fordham University Press about Catholic writers, and there's a chapter on Saunders. So some of this is, is going to be in there. Um, awesome. What's the sort of release, hopeful release date? Hopefully this spring. It's all set off. I haven't got the proofs back, but um, but yeah, the, the stated release time is, is supposed to be spring of 23. So hopefully that happens. Awesome. We will look super forward to that. My, for, my former boss is the director of that press and um, I don't really get along with him to be honest with you. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. What's your experience with them been like? Uh, so moving on, uh, no, I'm sure, I'm sure they'll do a great job. But uh, I, I, when you were talking about that, um, I, you know, I said I underlined so many quotes in this book, and it reminds me of one where he was talking about truth and beauty, and he. I thought of this because actually in the Zadie Smith, I remember when Zadie Smith's second book came out, The Autograph Man was terrible. Like white teeth I've got read that one. Well, don't, well, don't bother. Um, I read it. I didn't mind it that much. I thought it was okay. After white teeth, like she was a literary star yeah. Yeah, and everyone is like, what is she going to do next? And sophomore novel, guess what? You know, she spent 10 years writing white teeth and then like 10 weeks writing the next one. And uh, it came out. And I think years later she was asked like, why, why did that book, you know, not do very well. What, what, what did you do wrong there? What would you do differently? And she said something like there were a lot of things in it that were not true. And whenever she said that it's a very like fiction writer thing to say, like there, that is not true. And I think at the time I interpreted that as like, obviously everything in fiction should be considered not true, but truth being this idea of like resonance and he speaks to that uh, in this interview where he says, beauty is truth packaged efficiently. 
pithy, right? Well, then what is truth? Well, okay. I think truth for artistic purposes is that set of things that we feel deeply or have felt deeply, but can't quite articulate and can't quite prove in the direct statement of which feels deficient. And to me, that explained a lot of what I've heard other fiction writers talk about as like, what, you know, was that true? And that's sort of the barometer of like, mm. is it good? Like, is it actually, are you doing something that is good? Um, mm. And to hear him to be able to say that, like, yes, it's something you can feel, but not articulate and actually articulating it directly is deficient. Mm. Um, and I thought, wow, that is really, that is fucking pithy. <laughs> yeah, I underlined that quote too. There's another similar one on 36 where he says that like the goal of fiction is showing that nothing and everything are simultaneously true. Nothing's true and everything's true, <laughs> you know, from like a human perspective uh, in art. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's a quote know. machine. Like, but, like, totally. Just like yeah. super wise, yeah. right? Like yeah. you're yeah. like, damn, yes, that's it. Like, mm. Well, and like, Wallace that's was that way. People pick up the book because it, it is, it's true. There's a lot of that where you're just like, you know, yeah. the highlighter comes out and you're just like, I can't even stop because yeah. I want to yeah. highlight all of this. Yeah, totally. I feel like Wallace and Saunders are my two favorite like critical theorists and how they like just talk about literature. Because they're, yeah, they're both just infinitely quotable and captured things that I just want to say in the classroom as a teacher all the time when we're yeah. talking about this stuff, you know, like foregrounding, like, why does this, why does literature matter? Like, I just want to like do a lecture on Saunders and Wallace basically. Right. And pretty much yeah. have done that before. <laughs> <laughs> I want to, and I have, I've done that. Yeah. Yeah. I'll come to think of it. Yeah. I did. I did do that. Yeah. <laughs> well, Michael, we've talked a lot about, um, the book at hand, which we have in hand and which I hope that our listeners go out and purchase. It's totally affordable from Mississippi and uh, really appreciate you coming here to talk to us about the book. Is there anything that we have obviously missed here or that was on your list of things that you wanted to, to bring up today? In all honesty, no. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, no, Good. I mean, this was, I think the questions were great. I, I, Hope people pick up the book because I, I do think if you like Saunders's work, um, hearing him sort of reflect on the process is uh, very rewarding. And he's just a really smart dude. And the way that he puts things is really, um, I don't know, valuable. It is a sort of thing where I hope people can have on their nightstand and read an interview, you know, not like straight through, but just like pick it up, dive in, read a little bit. And there's like, nuggets to pull out and things to reflect on um, that's my hope anyways yeah i'm very glad that this collection exists now that there's a place where i can just go to read saunders's ideas and thoughts about this stuff with other smart writer people so thanks for putting this down and getting it out we really appreciate it michael yeah thanks for awesome having me on. one thing that you had mentioned a lot earlier matt was sort of like saunders scholarly studies and like the state of that mm -hmm. um and like, I feel like there are continually like, you know, an essay here or there kind of trickling out, but it hasn't, it's not at all like Wallace studies as a field, right? There's like one collection of essays about Saunders's work and then like, you know, a reasonable amount, but not an overwhelming amount of like published um, peer reviewed essays. And then, like you said, there's usually an ALA, like a panel or two on his work, but I, I'm hopeful that this book sort of will help uh, people who are interested in him um, to 
yeah, have another resource um, as what I hope is going to be like Saunders studies kind of keeps developing and um, that people, you know, people who submit to the Wallace Journal might also be interested in, you know, Wallace Saunders connections and there might be essays to come about that. Maybe there's a themed issue down the line in the Wallace uh, Journal that can be like Saunders and Wallace or something, but That's a cool yeah, idea. there's a lot there. So to anyone's knowledge, has there been like a full single author Saunders conference anywhere before? I would be happy to go to that. That'd be fun. Yeah, I mean, but that's like a good crowd. Take the, the day conference at Loyola, um, but I, that's all I know of. I don't think there's been like a, you know, Saunders. International Saunders conference, yeah. 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 But like, yeah, I mean, his work is, is so rich. It endlessly repays rereading and studying thought. So I think there's going to be a lot for scholars to dive into if they're interested. And some really? of these quotes that we've been mentioning from the book, I could totally see one of them, you know, serving as someone's dissertation title one day. And uh, <laughs> he's, he's that pithy and quotable. And I do yeah. think we'll continue to see more um, scholarly work on him, especially as he continues to write and publish more and add to that canon of literature. He's 63. So I think he's still got, you know, a lot of writing ahead of him. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm really optimistic to see how that field develops. I, I can't wait to follow more of it myself. So, yeah, I'm excited to dive into the new collection and just sort of see, you know, yeah, like anytime somebody comes out with stuff, you're like, whoa, what, what new directions has he taken his, his fiction? Or is there stuff in here that's different than what's come before? Yeah, I haven't had a chance to look into it yet, um, but I was looking quickly at some reviews this morning and it seems like so far the Liberation Day reviews are very positive. So as we'd expect <laughs> from George. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Uh, Michael, where can people find you online if they want to see more of your work or um, hear more about the books that you're interested in reading? You have an Instagram account where you document this. Uh, we're going to yeah, get to so... this in our, in our bonus piece with you uh, shortly here. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm on Instagram. Um, oh man. It's like the books, books in 2023 it changes in, right underscore and then yeah whatever the year is um, yeah because <laughs> I, I i don't have a great memory for remembering things and so it would be like oh i read that book but when did i read it so i don't know maybe five or six years ago i just started taking a picture of every book as i finished it and putting up like a couple line summary or response to it so i've been doing that for maybe five years um yeah i've yeah, really enjoyed following this over the years it. yeah it's books underscore in underscore 2022 is the current title yeah. yeah, for another nothing but the books I'm reading in 2022. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. And then I'm on Twitter at, at mock, M O C, for Mike O'Connell. Um, yeah, I got in on Twitter early, so I got, you know, without a bunch of numbers. Um, but I don't, I don't post a ton on Twitter, but I read a lot, I guess. Yeah, I don't either. Yeah. Um, yeah I spend <laughs> too much time, you know, reading, reading people's takes, mostly about sports. Oh, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> Football, oh, basketball, yeah. <laughs> oh, soccer and, and basketball accounts and then book accounts, basically. Yeah. Awesome. Well, that's great. Thank you so much for your time today, Michael. And we'll catch up with you to hear uh, your top five uh, favorite books of, your, of recent reading uh, in our bonus episode here. Uh, Matt, we got a few new patrons that we want to thank. Um, Nick Perry, huge shout out to you. Nick's been a very generous uh, patron. Uh, Isaac Eldridge, thank you so much. Uh, Pat Cohn and BK Bjorklund, thanks so much for your support. We really appreciate uh, each and every one of you for uh, backing our show. 
course, always, we want to thank Parquet Courts for their song, Instant Disassembly. Uh, I want to thank UP Mississippi for sending us review copies of Michael's book here, Conversations with George Saunders. And I want to thank Aaron Richards at Penguin Random House for, uh, she gave us like early digital access to Liberation Day. I had trouble getting it to work and getting the right apps, and I just didn't end up getting a chance to read it in time. Uh, but I look forward to digging into this collection like as soon as possible here. So anything else, Matt? Uh, thanks for being here, Mike. Super appreciate it. It's been a great talking to you. Totally. Uh, thanks so much for having me, guys. This has been really enjoyable. Happy to talk to you both and talk about the book. So Yeah, thanks. good catching up with you, man. Good to see you. Catch me now as I say. And I'm Mike O'Connell. And then say the line. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs>